Reconstructionist Radio presents a War Room production, Once Dead, where brothers and sisters in the faith share God's grace upon their lives, how they were once spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, but are now kingdom-driven by the grace of God so undeserved. My name is Toby Harmon, and I was once dead. I was born in 1977 in Carlsbad, New Mexico. It's a small town in South New Mexico, and my family lived on a privately owned five-acre lot that my grandparents owned, and I was raised in the church um, from the earliest memories that I have. I would be in church three times a week on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday evening. Uh, I was taught the Word of God in my home. Um, I remember even my dad would use his tape recorder and he would record asking us questions about the Bible, and, and as children we would answer them. And so I was, I was taught the Bible, my family was taught the Bible, and I was raised with a Christian foundation. I lived in Carlsbad until I was about seven years old, and then my dad got a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that was a bigger city, um, much larger than Carlsbad. Um, Basically went from being a country boy to a city boy when I was uh, in second grade. And again, you know, went to church three times a week, um, was taught the Word of God in the home, and it was around... um, seventh grade, uh, my dad was an elder in the church that we were a part of, and it was revealed that he was having an emotional affair with his best friend's wife uh, in the church, and he was church disciplined, rightly so, Um, but it it really destroyed our family, and my parents ended up getting a divorce, Um. And my dad pretty much checked out at that time. And up till that point, there had been strict discipline in the house. My dad was very good at disciplining us as children and keeping us in line, making sure that we obeyed my mom. And when my dad, when his, when he checked out, I mean, he didn't like totally leave our lives, but he had checked out mentally and he wasn't in the home anymore. And that, that sense of discipline left the house. And um, I became very angry. Um, I I didn't stop believing in God or anything like that, but I was angry. Uh, I didn't listen to my mom very well. And about that same time, I became best friends with with a guy named Gary. And I kind of uh, adopted his family and his family adopted me. And I became very close to his parents and to his family, his brother and his sister, and began spending a lot of time with them. Uh, Gary's family was not a Christian family. In fact, his parents were drug users. They often had parties. And and Gary was influenced by his family to go that route. So I remember in the seventh grade, uh, my sister and myself and Gary and some of my other friends, uh, I got drunk for the first time. And it was actually while I was living in the house with my dad, but he was so emotionally distraught. Um, He was hurt over losing 
um, this woman that he had had an emotional affair with. He was hurt over losing his family, and he basically was just not there mentally. And so in seventh grade, we stayed out to about two or three in the morning, getting drunk in the middle of the mesa, the desert, came home. Um, my dad slept through the whole thing, didn't know anything that was going on, thrown up in the toilet, and, uh, you know, had a really quote-unquote good time getting drunk in seventh grade. Um, I didn't I didn't really uh, do anything again in that regards. Had a couple opportunities to go out drinking, didn't do it. And, you know, just kept living my life, um, kept hanging out with Gary and being influenced by him. But I was also a, a dedicated basketball player. And around the time of high school, uh, I made I made the high school team. Um, a new coach had been hired, and they they really wanted me on the team. Uh, I played basketball. I was a freshman that was playing JV, and even got to play a little bit of varsity. And I always wanted to play college basketball, and so I became very focused and dedicated. Uh, to becoming a great basketball player. My dad had played for the University of Kansas uh, back in his college days, and so I always, always wanted to be a Jayhawk. So I, I focused myself on playing basketball. Um, in my freshman year, Gary had moved away. He went to Arizona for a couple years, or actually my eighth grade year. So I was kind of out of his influence and was really able to focus on basketball Um and so I started playing basketball. I uh, started dedicating myself to that. And really, um, even though I'd been baptized at 15 years old and had dedicated my, my life to, to following Jesus, uh, Christ was not my, my true master, my true Lord, but basketball was. It was basketball um, that kept me on the quote-unquote straight and narrow path because I knew that to be a great basketball player, uh, I couldn't be somebody who was getting high or getting drunk and going down that route. And so as a freshman, I was kind of the the nerdy kid. Um, didn't, you know, wasn't in the popular crowd or anything like that, but I didn't care because I was playing basketball. And actually that year, uh, Gary moved back from Arizona. And during the time that he had been gone, he began using drugs and he began smoking weed, and I remember him and his brother came back, and they smoked a joint in front of me. And I remember being very intrigued, but also afraid of of the drug culture and, and just even watching them. But I, I did ask a lot of questions about what it was like, what they felt like. But because of basketball, not because of Jesus, I wouldn't touch it. And so, you know, fast forward um, a couple years to my junior year in high school. And uh, it was actually the summer after my junior year. And, you know, I had a great season playing basketball. But I had noticed that Gary and my other friends um, had kind of started spending a little less time with me. And they'd become, um, they'd started spending time with the more in crowd or the more popular crowd. And they would go to parties and I would try to tag along sometimes and not drink or not, you know, not get involved in, in any of the stuff that was going on, but just kind of hang out and observe just because I wanted to be a part of what was going on. Uh, but I didn't find that very fun, and I felt very odd being at those parties, not partaking in, in what was going on there. And, 
you know, I started seeing this distance between uh, Gary and my friends, you know, going with the older crowd, uh, going to parties and being invited to things that I wasn't invited to. And I didn't like that very much. And so that summer, um, one of the seniors was having his graduation party and he invited us and I said, you know what? I'm going to go have fun. I'm going to I'm going to drink a little bit. I'm going to partake and I'm going to have a good time. Uh, I'm tired of not having fun. And so that night at my friend's party, um, I started drinking a couple of wine coolers. Um, then somebody made me a mixed drink. Uh, I believe it was orange juice and vodka. And then I started taking shots of, of hard liquor. And before the end of uh, the end of the night, I had smoked weed for the first time. And I remember waking up the next morning thinking, man, that was fun. Um, people were talking about how Toby was drinking and Toby was smoking and Toby was taking shots and they were laughing and we were enjoying it. And it, it was just such a good time. And it felt so good to be accepted by all these people um, who had formerly thought I was just kind of a dorky guy that just liked to play basketball. And I remember telling myself, you know what, I'll just do this every once in a while, like every every so often on a weekend, I'll go out and I'll have a great time like this. And I'll still stay focused on basketball. And, uh, you know, I, I can live that that kind of life. But once I had opened the doors, really um, opened that floodgate, the flood poured in. Uh, it wasn't long before I was getting drunk every weekend. Uh, before I was smoking weed, you know, on a weekly basis. And my friends who had been smoking weed and getting drunk for quite a while uh, began doing other things. Uh, they began um, experimenting with LSD, um, with cocaine, with methamphetamines. I remember driving two of my friends around while they were tripping on acid and just watching their experience and being very intrigued again by wow, I wonder what that's like. But I was still kind of afraid of, of the harder drugs. But the next weekend, they convinced me that, hey, why don't we take acid together? So I took acid for the first time, uh, was introduced to Bob Marley and, and all this different music that I was like, whoa, this is just sounds so good. And I'm, I'm tripping out on acid. And it was just from there on, I was just hooked and I wanted to try new things and I wanted to go on a, you know, uh, a more crazy trip. And I started using cocaine, uh, started using methamphetamine. I remember Gary one time was like, hey, man, let's go and let's ditch lunch or ditch uh, whatever, fourth period or fifth period at lunch. We'll go. Uh, we'll do some meth. And I was like, man, I can't. I got to write this paper. And I remember him telling me, man, you'll write that paper in 30 minutes flat if you come come do this meth with us. And so I, I went with him, snored a couple lines, wrote my paper. I went to basketball practice. I remember I felt like Superman in basketball practice. And I was just going up and down the court, just dominating people like I'd never done before. And again, was just kind of blown away at, at the effect of this, the power of this drug that it had on me. And um, went through my senior year of high school and still wasn't just getting high and drunk every single day. I had had it under control enough that I could still do well in basketball. And I ended up having a, a pretty good senior season 
um, enough to get a scholarship to one of the top junior colleges in the nation, the College of Southern Idaho. Um, and so the summer before I left for Idaho was one of the funnest, most memorable summers that I had ever had. I, I remember I began dating one of one of the most popular girls in in, high, in our high school. Um, was you know was having sex, um, not not for the first time, but like on a consistent basis with this girl, and I really developed this deep these deep feelings for her based upon this sexual relationship and our mutual shared experience of, of the summer of partying that we engaged in together and just going to parties and becoming very popular and, and people liking me and accepting me and just becoming one of the, one of the guys, one of the, one of the cool kids, if you will. I remember that summer, my dad drove me to Idaho and it was like a 24 hour drive or something like that. And I remember just being sick to my stomach that I had to leave my friends, that I had to leave my girlfriend. And I remember just, oh, it was just tore me up inside. I, I was so homesick when I got to Idaho and uh, all I want to do is go back home. All I want to do is go back and and experience that that fun of partying with my friends and and just live that summer for the rest of my life. And so what I did in Idaho is I tried to transform Idaho into Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I surrounded myself with the guys on the team that wanted to go out and party, that wanted to get high. And I remember um, I, I really just kicked it into high gear. I remember smoking meth out of light bulbs in the, light bulbs in the dorms, uh, taking acid, um, getting drunk probably five to six nights a week, just all the time. And this was the first time I really saw it affecting my ability to play basketball because I no longer was in the gym after practice or before practice, um, getting in, getting in shots or getting in work and improving my game. I remember, uh, sleeping through class or sleeping through practice and waking up and be like, Oh, I'm late to practice. And I'd run over there and I'd be late to practice. That had never happened in my life. Uh, I was a truly dedicated basketball player that always looked down on people that didn't take it seriously. And here I was not taking it seriously. And I remember um, I got drunk one night at a, a school dance there at, in Idaho. And uh, I blacked out that night. And I remember... I, I embarrassed this this girl that was like performing this dance. I went up and like started dancing on her and her husband got mad and I I was so drunk I didn't even know. I remember like urinating publicly and um, they called me into the president's office the next day and asked me about these things and I didn't remember any of them. I thought they were making it up. I was like, I didn't do any of that. I don't remember any of that. And so that was the first time that my, my family realized that I was using drugs or actually using alcohol. My coach called my mom. They had me go to a few AA meetings and, you know, kind of gave me a slap on the wrist. But from that point on, I was being watched and I was, um, you know, my, my coach didn't trust me quite as much. But uh, it didn't stop me. It didn't hinder me. I kept partying, kept doing all these things. And there were several times when I had knives pulled on me or guns pulled on me in this little small town in Idaho. Um should have lost my life probably a, a few times there. 
Um, fast forward to the end of the season, um, we're, we're playing for uh, the national tournament to try to try to get into the national tournament. We're in Coeur in Idaho at this resort. We lose our game and we go back to this, this nice resort hotel in which there are um, many bars in each of the rooms that are locked and we're not allowed to be in them, obviously, because we're underage. But a couple of the cheerleaders had broken the lock on their mini bar refrigerator in their room and invited me up and invited a couple of guys from the other team that had beat us. And we went and partied together. And I'm pretty sure we emptied that refrigerator of alcohol. Um, I remember we actually like urinated in the Corona bottles and put the lids back in, back on. We would, we filled up the vodka and the Bacardi bottles with water and put the lids back on to make it look like we hadn't drank everything that was in there. And those cheerleaders ended up getting caught and they ended up ratting me out. And so I remember, uh, you know, it was about a week later back at the dorms in Idaho and I had spent the entire night tripping acid and had just walked back into my dorm room and got under the covers and it's probably four or five in the morning and I hear my dorm room door clicking and my coach peeks his head in. He's like, Toby, pack your stuff. You're going home. And I was like, what? And I was acting like I'd been asleep all night, but really I'd been up and I was still hallucinating a little bit. And he said, you want to tell me about your little party? in Coeur d'Alene, and I played dumb, acted like I didn't know, but at that point he was fed up, and he sent me home on a the longest bus ride trip ever back to New Mexico, and at that point I didn't really care about basketball, and I just went on a, a one-year meth binge and party binge, and got back involved with Gary and my, my group of friends here in New Mexico, and began really using uh, a lot of hardcore drugs and uh, ended up moving to, to Bremerton, Washington with Gary and his family um, so that we could get away from drugs when our lives had kind of spiraled out of control, thinking we could run from our problems, but really the problem was us. And we went to Bremerton, Washington, and all we did was find better and more high-quality drugs and continue to spiral out of control. And at one point, I had this clarity of mind and was like, I really want to play basketball again. So I stopped doing meth. I stopped doing all the hardcore drugs, just smoking weed and was drinking alcohol. But I got back in shape and decided I wanted to play basketball again. And uh, I was actually supposed to play at Oklahoma State for Eddie Sutton um, after I finished in Idaho. But it, because I got kicked out, that didn't happen. But uh my high school coach called Coach Sutton. My dad called him also. And so Coach Sutton got me in at Rose State here in Oklahoma. And that's how I got to Oklahoma. I um, was playing at a, a junior college here called Rose State. That's actually where I met my wife. So I came there, um, played basketball for a year. Uh, again, never really took it as serious as I once had because I was still smoking weed, still getting drunk and getting high and living that lifestyle of just um, rebellion and disobedience to, to God and the Christian foundation I'd been raised with. Um, speaking about that, I had never stopped believing in Jesus. I had never stopped believing in, in, in what the Bible said about the life that I was living. I always knew that I was living in sin. 
And as I lived this life, I always felt this impending judgment or this impending doom coming down upon my head. And I remember my mom sent me a Bible because she was always worried about me and she was always praying for me for these these eight or nine years that I was living this way. And sometimes I'd come home drunk and I would try to open up the Bible and I, I would read it. And I remember I just couldn't understand what what it was saying, what it was trying to tell me. Um, and sometimes I'd cry myself to sleep, uh, wanting to get out of this lifestyle, but not knowing how, not being able to break free from it. And I always felt like I'm either going to die because I'm going to get shot or stabbed. Um, I'm going to wreck my car driving drunk and kill a family and maybe kill myself. Or Jesus was going to return and he was going to judge me and throw me in, into the lake of fire. And I always believed that. I, I knew I, would, I was going to go to hell if, if one of those things happened. And I always felt this judgment and doom over my shoulder, over my head um, at these times when I'd have this, these moments of clarity knowing that I was sinning and knowing I was rebelling against God. But it was never enough to, to uh, cause me to break free, to, to, to change me. And I, I continued to pursue my sin. And I played at Rose State, um, ended up getting a scholarship at Southwest Baptist in Missouri at a Division II school there. And I went there for about three days. And again, I was homesick. And I, I missed um, Cicely, who was now my wife, but at the time was just my girlfriend. And after about three days, she came and picked me up, drove me back to Norman, Oklahoma. And I began living with her. And within, uh, you know, I don't know how long, a few months, she was pregnant with my first son, who is now 15. And uh, I, I continued to live just a lifestyle of partying, getting high, um, again, dabbling in, in heavier and more hardcore drugs again now that my basketball career was over. And uh, somewhere in that time, I began selling drugs. I began selling marijuana. Um, my friend would bring it up from New Mexico where we could get it for half as, half the price it was in Oklahoma. And me and him for about a month went around kind of trying to like build a customer, ba customer base. And I remember me and him were at a strip club one night in Norman. And we were handing out, you know, nickel bags of, of weed to different people and said, hey, man, if, you know, if you need something, call me up. We, we can hook you up. We can help you out. And it just so happened that my friend had given his number to an off-duty police officer who was at the strip club that night. And a few weeks later, um, got a phone call from a guy. He was like, hey, uh, is Jeff there? And Jeff was my friend. I said, no, um, but I can help you out. You know, he's gone, but I can, I can get you what you need. And so I began setting up, or this guy began setting up uh, deals with me where he would buy an ounce of weed at a time. I'd meet him, I'd sell it to him. And it was, you know, every few weeks, every month or so, he would call me up and need another ounce. Uh, he said he had met me at the strip club. Uh, what I didn't know is that the off-duty police officer that got our phone number went and gave our phone number to the drug task force, and they began setting up deals with me in order to rack up charges against me and uh, really, really nail me down. And so on the third time that uh, they set up a deal with me, I went and met him. I remember it was either at a, um, a car wash near the Sonic or it was at the Sonic. And we were in one of the stalls. Uh, my son, uh, who is now 15, was 
he was three years old at the time. He was in the back seat asleep in the car, and I had brought him on these deals a couple of times. And the undercover agent, what I found out later, had decided that it was too dangerous for my son because I kept bringing him along with me for these drug deals, and he wasn't sure, you know, if a you know a gunfight could ensue, or you know, he just knew it was dangerous for my son. And so they called and they pulled the plug, and I pulled out. Um, remember, got on the pulled out into the road in my Lincoln Town car with black limo tent. And I got lit up from behind from a, just a regular police car. And I remember thinking, oh, man, what did I make an illegal turn or something? And uh, so I pulled over into the grocery store parking lot. He came up and he didn't actually know what was going on. He asked for my ID. Um, and so I gave it to him, asked for my insurance, gave it to him. And he was walking back to his car And all of a sudden, four more police cars pulled up, two unmarked vans pulled up, and people in black ski masks got out, and they had their guns drawn on me in the car, and my legs just turned to rubber. And I thought, I can't believe this is happening. I'm busted. They know what's been going on. And they took me out of the car, they put me into the back of a police cruiser, and they drove my Lincoln Town car off with my three-year-old son in it. And I remember thinking, I'm never going to see my son again. And that that blow just really came down hard on me. And uh, I remember they took me to the, uh, the police station. And I could hear my son crying around the corner, asking for his daddy, asking where his daddy was at. He was scared to death. And they walked me around the corner in handcuffs, and he was surrounded by four or five undercover agents that still had these black ski masks on because they couldn't reveal their identity. And uh, I just remember seeing him scared to death and it broke my heart. And they were trying to get information from me about my dealer and my supplier, um, threatening to, to, to call DHS to take my son from me and I'd never see him again. And they were trying to use him as leverage to get information from me and I wouldn't give any information. And I remember getting the word out to, you know, to call my dealer, to let them know that they might be on to him and warned him. And I was still, you know, not thinking rightly, but, uh, I knew that I was in trouble. And eventually I got a hold of, of my father-in-law and he came and picked up my son and, uh, they couldn't use him for leverage anymore. And I went to jail that night and not knowing how long I was going to be there. And I remember walking in there it was later at night and everybody was on lockdown. There was all these faces looking out of their jail cells at me through the window. And I, I saw a couple of familiar faces of people I'd sold to. And I remember thinking, I am not like these people. I should not be here. Uh, this, this is not me. And I remember that night, uh, I just cried out to God and I said, Lord, I've I've left you. I've, I've strayed. I've rebelled against you, and I, I turned from this lifestyle. And I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk by faith in you, regardless if I go to prison or regardless if I am freed um, from the consequences of my sins. And I remember uh, I went for my arraignment. My bond was like seventy thousand dollars. And uh, met with a lawyer, and they told me that I was looking at five years in prison, 10 years probation. 
Um, and because I had my son in the car with me, it was considered a child endangerment. So it was a violent, considered a violent crime. Um, I remember I went and met with uh, a drug court, a person that, that helped in drug court. It was an, an out of out of jail program that that first time and second time drug offenders um, could go through and avoid their prison time, but you could not have any violent crimes associated with you or you were ineligible for drug court. And he looked at my my charges and said, no, you're not eligible. So I went back to to my cell and thought, man, I'm going to prison. I'm I'm not going to get out. Um, My mom ended up getting me a lawyer. And she is actually friends with the the district attorney at the time. And he agreed to drop my violent charges so that I could get into drug court. So after uh, 21 days or 20 days in, in the county jail, uh, the deal was worked and I was able to get out and, and go to drug court. It was an 18-month program. I uh, had to get drug tested four times a week, had to go to counseling twice a week, had to go to AA meetings six to eight times a week, had to go to court every Thursday to check in, had an eight o'clock curfew, very, very strict um, regulations of, of these things that I had to follow. But I remember I was, I was committed to the Lord and I was going to follow him no matter what. I committed that to him and he, he allowed me to be freed from from not going to prison. Now, if I didn't pass through drug court, I would have to serve my time. Anybody who didn't make it through drug court, they would have to serve the prison sentence that they were handed down and that they had pled guilty to their charges. Um, and I saw a lot of people get kicked out of drug court and go to prison because um, they hadn't truly been changed. They hadn't truly been set free um, from their addictions and from their slavery to their sin. I remember early on in drug court, um, I was driving home and I was like, I'm going to stop and get a couple of 40s and I'm going to go home and drink them. And I'm going to get drunk. And I remember uh, I was about to take a left into the gas station so I could pick them up. And the spirit of God just convicted me um, very strongly and gave me the power to drive past that gas station. And I got home as quickly as I could and I didn't get drunk. And I didn't get high and I made it home and I stayed clean the entire time and I made it through drug court, um, had all my, my felonies were expunged and my records were sealed. Uh, they could never be held against me again and, and, you know, in a future court case or anything like that. And I remember when I got out of jail, I came home was still living with, with my girlfriend, who is now my wife and my child. And uh, there was just, I was now a new creation. She was still the old person that, that had first met me, first been attracted to me. And she continued to live a lifestyle of partying. Um, had never been raised in the church, didn't know anything about God, didn't care about God. And it, it just wasn't going to work out. And so I ended up moving out. Uh, we broke up. Uh, we had a lot of problems. We're fighting. Knew it wasn't going to work. And she just began observing my life and began observing that I truly was a different person. 
She saw that I had purpose and joy and meaning in my life, that I was uh, wanting to make something of my life, that I was now a good father that was there for my son and cared about my son. And over six to eight months period of time, um, she just began to reflect and look at her life and look at my life. And she desired what I had and what she did not have. And she said one night she just prayed and said, God, I don't know who you are. I don't know if you exist. I don't know if you're real. I don't know anything about you. But I see what Toby has and I want that. And, and if you're real, show yourself to me, reveal yourself to me, help me to believe. And uh, shortly after that, she was able to quit smoking cigarettes, quit drinking alcohol, and she was just transformed from the inside out. And she said that that transformation um, was the evidence to her that God was real. And we began going to church together. Um, we began, we, we ended up getting married shortly after and established our family. And uh, I began becoming involved in, in in things in church. I remember I, I became a, a church Sunday school teacher. I was actually teaching Russell Hunter's Sunday school class, the young marrieds class. Um, got really involved in like theology and reading apologetics and evangelism. Um, all I want to do was share the gospel with people at my job and all the contractors that would come in. I worked at a tile warehouse. I would share the gospel with them. I would write um, scripture verses on all their orders I remember my boss told me I had to stop doing it, but all I wanted to do was talk about Jesus. All I wanted to do was share the good news with other people. And uh, I began working my way up in ministry in this church that I was a part of and ended up getting a, a job as a youth pastor um, or associate youth pastor there um, and was going to school to get my degree online. Uh, so that I could end up going to seminary and, and maybe becoming a pastor one day. And about that time, uh, the work of abolition began. Uh, Russell and myself were um, involved in the, these theological and these um, ethical roundtables at the church that we were involved in. And it was during one of those that Russell presented um, abolitionism for the first time. He made the first public declaration of abolition. And I remember hearing it and thinking, I want to be a part of that. I want to do that. And so we began doing the work of abolition in this church. Um, and it wasn't too long that, um, you know, the pastor saw what we were doing, saw that we were opposing a, a lot of the established pro-life movement. Um, and for some reason or, or another, felt threatened by what we were doing and ended up throwing abolition out of his church and abolitionists out of the church or forcing them out or pressuring them out. Uh, ended up giving me an ultimatum um, to either keep to either keep my my job as a youth pastor or to pursue the work of abolition. And uh, I gave up my my staff position at Trinity Baptist Church and by faith, uh, just did the work of abolition. And uh, ever since, I've, I've been doing the work of the kingdom of God um, through the means of abolitionism uh, with this faithful group of, of men and women here in Norman, Oklahoma. 
And I've been blessed to be a part of this group. I've been blessed to be um, to be so close and involved with such an intelligent, talented, and, and faithful group of men and women here in Norman, Oklahoma, that uh, God has, by His grace, um, used to turn the world upside down. Um, I'm not a smart guy. I'm not a highly intelligent guy. I'm not a highly talented guy. Um, and so I, I've certainly been blessed to be put around this group of men and women and be given the opportunity um, to have an impact in the kingdom of God in this way. And I've, I've met, met many faithful brothers and sisters along the way. And again, it's just all by the grace of God. I can look back on, on that time where I was living in rebellion for nine years against everything I'd been taught as a child, everything I knew that was true as an adult and a teenager. And I can look and see how God's hand was upon me, uh, how he saved my life so many times from death, um, how he, he saved me from going to prison, um, how he saved me from the destruction of alcohol and drugs and pornography and, and sexual addiction. So my name is Toby Harmon, and I am now, by the grace of God, kingdom-driven.